0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. Many of you have written in wanting me to address the impact of children and parenting on relationships. And as you might expect, the impact is considerable. How do you take some of the ideas we've been talking about here on the podcast and apply them to how you interact with kids? How do you get away from fear-based tactics of command and control rewards, and punishment, and instead switch to a form of parenting that's trust-based. Since we focus so much on conscious relationships on the show, I wanted to tackle the topic of conscious, growth-oriented parenting with one of the nation's experts on the topic. Alfie Cohn is the author of 14 books on education and parenting, including Unconditional Parenting, Moving from Rewards and Punishment to Love and Reason, and the newly re-released Myth of the Spoiled Child. He has been featured in Time magazine and on Oprah, and he challenges much of the conventional wisdom about parenting. So you can find out more about Alfie Kohn at his website, alfiekohn.org, and his name is spelled A-L-F-I-E-K-O-H-N. My hope is that you'll see how this approach to parenting also has something to offer you in your relationships. Are you fostering playfulness, curiosity, cooperation, or compliance and resentment? It's going to be a jam-packed episode, so Alfie Cone, thank you so much for being here with us today on Relationship Alive.
1: Glad to be here.
0: Let's dive in, and if you don't mind, I'd like to start at the end. And when I say the end, I, I guess I mean the end of your book, Unconditional Parenting, where you talk about the importance of perspective taking. And this has come up a lot in the show when we're communicating with our partners. Where we want to, to try and get into their into their head, into their mind, into their shoes, and as you say in your book, into their feet, and to actually see the world from their perspective to help create... Bridges to understanding them, and hopefully to um, creating a stronger connection with your partner. And you talk about how important this is in parenting
1: as well. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Sure. Perspective taking is a process that consists of getting out of yourself and being able to imagine how the world looks from someone else's perspective. Sometimes how it looks in the literal, spatial sense, But more importantly, how other people think and how they feel, um, even if that doesn't correspond with the way we think and feel. Some people refer to perspective-taking as empathy, but there is, technically speaking, a difference between imagining how somebody else feels about something and actually feeling along with them and sharing that emotion, which is what uh, uh, empathy actually means. So in the last chapter of Unconditional Parenting, I talk about perspective-taking with kids in two respects. First, how we can promote it in kids, because it's such a key developmental characteristic that helps kids to get beyond themselves, and it predicts to um, being helpful, especially when some actual empathy is there as well. And then secondly, I talk about perspective taking as a characteristic of good parenting. When we can imagine how things look from our kids' point of view, um, we're much more likely, and there's research to support this, um, to be responsive to their needs, to work with them instead of doing things to them, and especially for kids who are too young or mistrustful or whatever, to be able to simply explain to us how things look Um, from their perspectives, it becomes even more important to sort of imaginatively get inside them and escape ourselves. Parents who do that tend to be better parents in other ways, too.
0: And this gets at the heart of what you're talking about in unconditional parenting versus conditional parenting, that we need to ask this question about what do we actually want for our children and is what we're doing actually bringing about that result?
1: Yes. When I speak to groups of parents, or teachers for that matter, I often begin by asking what what their long-term goals are for, for their kids, their own kids in the case of parents, or their students in the case of educators. And wherever I go, I tend to get very similar kinds of answers. You know, I, I want my kid to be happy, to be ethical, to be a caring and compassionate person, also to be self-reliant, and uh, uh, to be a lifelong learner, curious, creative, critical thinker, that sort of thing. And so basically what I do for a living is I say to people, you say you want this, so why are you doing that? Because most traditional practices at homes and at schools actually undermine or at best aren't relevant to the very things we say we'd like for our kids over the long haul. So for example, if we want kids to care about others, not just themselves, uh, to be good at perspective taking, to reach out, to lend a hand when necessary, to be uh, caring human beings, the last thing we would want to do is reward or praise kids when they please us, especially when they please us for being generous. Because research finds that kids who are often rewarded or praised for meeting an adult's expectations, become more self-centered. Now the question is, um, what do I have to do um, in in front of somebody with the power to reward me in order to get that pat on the head? That good job, good sharing, I really like the way you... That makes kids less concerned about the impact of their action on others. Now the question they're asking is, What do they want me to do, and what do I get for doing it? And it actually um, supports the opposite of what many of us would like. Now, the context, if you like, the foundation for thinking about this and other issues with parenting is to ask what it is kids need. That's a very different question from the question that most parenting resources ask, which is, how can I get my kids to do whatever I want them to do? be well-behaved, you know, to follow the rules, to not hit, or lie, or whatever. Very different to come at it by asking, what do kids need, and how can we meet those needs? And it turns out that one of the most uh, elementary needs that children have, that all of us have, is not merely to be loved, but to be loved for who we are, as opposed to for what we do. So, any amount of conditional love, which means love with strings attached, um, I love you, approve of you, I give you attention, acknowledgement, um, if you or as long as you do the following, and those conditions may vary, um, that turns out to be quite damaging, psychologically speaking, because then kids grow up kind of putting conditions Uh, on their own self-acceptance, I'm only a good person as long as I follow the rules, as long as I'm smart, funny, thin, attractive, whatever the condition is. And so my book that does deal with issues having to do with perspective-taking, alternatives to rewards and punishments, is grounded in this idea of asking the question, In the long run, what do we want for our kids, not just how do we get them to comply with our demands today, and what do they need? And the answer to that being unconditional love, not just love, points us in the direction of figuring out how we can raise kids not only loving them unconditionally, but knowing, feeling that they're loved unconditionally because it's not our take on the situation that ultimately predicts the results. It's theirs. This
0: has direct bearing on conversations that we've had earlier on the podcast. I'm thinking particularly about um, some of the attachment people that we've talked to, Mm -hmm. Uh, Sue Johnson, Stan Tatkin. Um, Where in terms of our adult relationships, we are wrestling with are we are we securely attached in our partnership or are we insecurely attached? And one thing that jumped out at me in what you were just saying is this notion that if in our relationship with our children, and of course, we are the ones who are setting up our children for the kinds of relationships they will have as adults, Mm -hmm. if if our love comes with strings attached then I I then that's not going to be a very secure attachment. I, I can't imagine binding anything with string and having it really <laughs> last all that well. So yes. um so Go this ahead. and I'm curious if you can can shed a little light on that. And also um I'm I'm wondering if too we can give our listeners a sense of the the gamut of because you've mentioned praise you've mentioned punishment can you can you just mention some specific things that people tend to do and think well this is okay or this is less bad Um, because i think that those things we do with our kids we also tend to do with our partners as well
1: yes um let me begin by saying that the term secure attachment as related specifically to young children and the way they they deal or think of their parent has a long, important history in developmental psychology with the work of John Bowlby and so on. But when we talk about it in other contexts, such as in adult relationships, then I think we have to be careful, because if you use the the words, like, lowercase, a secure attachment to somebody else, that's not always a good thing, because there are people who are very securely attached, tightly bound to their partners, and it's really a dysfunctional relationship. So the quality or nature of adult relationships is as important as the um, how, how securely one feels connected to them. Um, and that leads to the, the broader question of the relationship between how we raise kids and how we relate to people our own age. There are important parallels, which I think you're you're pointing out, but there are also important differences, um, and it's interesting to explore those. Nobody wants to feel loved by another adult um, contingently, as if every day um, you have to fulfill certain demands or conditions, and if you stop acting in a particular way, the person's going to withdraw affection or leave. And yet... There is a degree of conditionality, I think, inherent in adult relationships that shouldn't be present in the way we treat our children, which is to say, no matter what, no matter what our children do, we have to be there for them, um, and they have to know that we will, which is not necessarily the case, because we can imagine um, a partner doing things where we would, in fact, say, um, you've crossed a line, this ends. Now, to get to the latter part of your question, um, it's very hard to summarize concisely what I call a working-with approach to parenting, because it depends so much on the details of who these people are and the situations in which we and our kids find ourselves. Um, Rewards and punishments are so popular because they seem easy. It's one size fits all. When your kid does something bad, you, you do something bad to the kid and then you pretend it's not punishment by calling it a logical consequence to make yourself feel better. Um, Or when your kid does something that pleases you, you give him a doggy biscuit of some kind. That's easy. Now I don't have to think. I can be on auto-parent. The alternative is not just the absence of of bribes and threats. The alternative is is a whole complex network of guidelines that have to be applied in different ways that I try to tease out in my book, but without a recipe that I don't pretend to. If your kid does this, you stand here and say the following in this tone of voice. I think that is disrespectful to both you and your children. But among the things that I, that I, that I talk about are, um, first of all, of course, letting kids know they're that you accept them no matter what your love is not in danger, no matter what they do. Um, and then a lot of it is to bring kids in on decision-making, um, to give kids more say. Uh, that's part of what I mean by a working with approach. Kids learn to make good decisions by making decisions, not by following directions. And sometimes our need for control um, uh, for our comfort and convenience that's rationalized as being necessary because of their immaturity, holds them back um, from the kind of long-term goals we hope for. There's much more, of course. Uh, at some point in the book, I offer you know, a list of general guidelines of which giving them more say about their lives is just one, but it's certainly an important one.
0: Yeah, and getting to getting back to what you were saying about the um, attachment and people per, perhaps being securely attached in dysfunctional ways, uh, I totally hear you and what jumped out at me was this question that we've explored on the show around how partners create safety for each other and um, and in particular we um, have just spoken with Steve Porges about polyvagal theory and and what's actually happening in our nervous systems and it strikes when when we feel unsafe and and it strikes me that what you're talking about in terms of unconditionally loving our children is a lot about helping their nervous systems feel safe so that they can respond constructively versus when you're ordering them about doing to them, as you, as you mentioned, um, those, you know, my experience with my own kids, I can see that when I'm wielding my power and I'm ashamed to say that as I was reading through the examples in your book of like, oh yeah, there's a way that I do it where I would think, oh, I'm, I'm actually being loving, but I'm not really being loving, um, in this <laughs> moment. Um, you know, I think those are times when my kids nervous systems literally, go into collapse or fight or flight, and that's when those uh, troublesome behaviors come out that then we're trying extra hard to control.
1: Yeah, I'm sure there's physiological correlates to all of this. I mean, I'm not sure. I I think sometimes we get ahead of ourselves by invoking biological science to try to justify things we ought to do or want to do anyway, and sometimes that science really points in many different directions and doesn't prescribe a specific uh, course of action. But, uh, you know, you don't don't have to talk about the nervous system to see that your kid's in distress and unhappy um, or or feeling put upon or unsupported. Uh, We have plenty of evidence uh, just in front of our eyes if we especially imagine how things look from the child's point of view. The first step is to getting back to perspective taking. Imagine, you know, how I'd likely feel if somebody said this to me when I was not in a powerful position. But then the next step is to realize that even if I would feel okay about it, it doesn't mean she feels okay about it, because she's a different person and may have different needs um, because of personality as well as age and, and other considerations. Um, so it's the For some people, there's an ideology that supports what I think of as bad parenting, that's control-based, top-down, doing-to, bribe and threat, um, because we we rationalize it as being necessary, inevitable, good for kids in the long run. Or the cheesiest rationalization is, well, people are going to treat them like that later, so we might as well get them ready now. They're going to be unhappy in other environments, so we better prepare them by making them unhappy while they're small, which makes, of course, absolutely no sense. But then a lot of us really have a good instinct for what kids need. It's just that we have trouble doing it all the time. I do too. We we're, we're all struggle with coming up with the patience to, to respond in the way that any of us know makes sense. You know, uh, parenting is about uh, when you're at the end of your rope, you somehow have to manufacture more rope. <laughs> and and that's particularly difficult um, if you weren't raised that way. In other words, we learn most about how to parent from the way we ourselves were parented. And it it takes really some courage as well as a sense of perspective to be able to look back at our own childhoods and say, uh, yeah, this this made sense. I'd like to, to reproduce that with my own children, but that didn't. And I'm going to leave that behind, as opposed to just mindlessly, you know, ending up with uh, a phenomenon I call, how did my mom get in my larynx? <laughs>
0: yeah, and unfortunately, we are with you a relatively short time today, so we won't have time to go extensively into the why control-based parenting, whether that's based on rewards, or as you call it, conditional parenting, based on rewards or based on punishment, why it's bad. Mm -hmm. But suffice to say, there's plenty of evidence that you offer in your book that shows that when you are focused on managing a child's behavior through punishment or through punishing bad behavior or rewarding good behavior, which is Typical um, behaviorism—that the uh, intended effects are actually opposite of what you would hope for. Can you chat
1: about that quickly? When you punish children, uh, you're you're basically what they hear is uh, is I I had better do this, or I'm going to be hurt um, if I'm caught. And so, no punishment, even if it's called a consequence, ever helped a child think in terms of right and wrong, only in terms of power. Um, and kids become more self-centered when, and sometimes cleverer at evading detection when they're given some kind of punishment, including a very cruel punishment um, used with younger children, called, which should be called forcible isolation when they need us most, but instead is called time out because that sounds innocuous and makes us feel better about making them feel bad. When they're rewarded... You know, treated like pets, you get a sticker or a gold star or a dessert or a good job for jumping through our hoops. That does nothing to advance their moral development and, in fact, undermines it. And loads and loads of research have shown that the more you reward kids for doing something, the more they tend to lose interest in whatever they had to do to get the reward. So if you reward kids for, for caring, they actually become a little more selfish, because now they're not trying to make the other kid um, feel better. They're trying, you've taught them to stop focusing on the impact of their action on others and to think about, what am I going to get out of it? Um, and there's loads, as I say, loads of data to support that. So it's not about rewarding or praising slightly differently. It's about questioning all of those things, and in fact, questioning the underpinning of behaviorism itself, since you use that word, because what really defines a behaviorist is not just the use of rewards, it's a focus on behavior. So, I mean, my rule of thumb is, in judging a resource for parents, um, an article or a book or a seminar, is um, that the quality of that resource is inversely related to the number of times the word behavior appears. So that when people, when you hear that word a lot, it's time to worry. Because that, you are now being led to focus only on the observable actions, what you can see and measure. And once you focus just on that, you're likely gonna get some suggestions of bribing and threatening people to change the behavior. What matters are the needs and motives and reasons and values that underlie and inform the child's behavior. The more you focus on your child's behavior, the more you're missing the child who acts in those particular ways, the stuff underneath the surface. And so stopping the rewards and, and punishments is part of a, a larger shift from behavior to the child, from short term compliance to long term goals. Um, from doing to to working with
0: so i'm wondering if you could offer an example of the flip side you you touched on it a little bit earlier um the working with style of unconditional parenting and i'm imagining a listener sitting there saying well wait a minute like now i'm not supposed to praise my child and what do I do when my six-year-old is acting up and we have somewhere to go and they're just being adamant and resistant and throwing a tantrum and aren't, like, I'm supposed to reason with them? Like, aren't I supposed to set limits? Because I'm the parent. I I set limits. Limits are good for children. Yeah.
1: Well, that's, as, as Thomas Gordon, the inventor of parent effectiveness training, said many years ago, the question is not whether whether limits and guidelines are necessary the question is who sets them the adult unilaterally imposing them on the kid or the adult working with the kid in order that the child can be invited to reflect which is something that can happen well before the age of six incidentally if you're doing it right um, my first step if i see a kid acting out about not wanting to to go somewhere is instead of immediately asking how can i make the child shut up and do what i tell him and go where i I want is to ask is there a good reason for the child's opposition to what extent was the child consulted about whether we're going and when we're going and what we're going to do and how long we're going to spend there as opposed to you shut up i decide where we're going Now sometimes the answer is we don't have a choice about it but not always you know there are situations where compliance does become essential, but when we make a fetish of demanding compliance and expect to be obeyed instantly and mindlessly all the time, then we are going to elicit pushback from many, from many kids, and for damn good reason. When we are less likely to do that, when we are selective, uh, in our response, when we build some extra time in for talking so we're not always in a rush. Um, and when we do more asking than telling, as a rule, kids tend to be more likely to say okay on those occasions when we really just need them to go along. So one, one aspect of working with parenting you know, really can be summarized in four words, which is talk less, ask more. And that would be a great example and maybe a good place for us to end today but a great example of a connection between relationships with kids and relationships with other adults because talk less ask more also turns out to be a very wise bit of counsel for making us um, better friends and spouses and lovers and managers um, it's the tendency to want to impose our will and perspective on others that gets adult relationships into trouble a lot as well as derailing good parenting
0: yeah i love that and i'm wondering if you could actually maybe end with with um an example of how you turn praise into questions that that give attention and also elicit thinking?
1: Well, very very quickly, I'll say, first, sometimes when we praise, the answer is, shut up, you don't need to say anything, just watch. We praise more often because we need to say it than because the kid needs to hear it. Praise is not encouragement. Praise is judgment. Praise is saying, you have pleased me, Um, and I'm going to give you a verbal doggy biscuit for doing that, and silence is often better than that. Um, A second response might be simply to describe what it is you see you know, here's when you know when when my daughter was drawing when she was quite young you know i might say something like oh there's there's toes on those on those animals you drew um, i wouldn't say oh i like how well you draw even the toes you're so good with detail you know it's just sickening the way we just marinate kids in this evaluation that's completely gratuitous but if we simply say here's what i noticed it helps pull her attention um, into what she's done so she can reflect on what she did and why she did it and whether she wants to do it again. So, and we might accompany that finally with a question like, how did you figure out how to draw toes? Or in a very different circumstance, why did you decide to share your brownie with Diane? Because I know you love brownies a lot. That's very different from, I like the way you said she could share her, you know. When you praise kids, you, you make them dependent on an adult evaluation. And I know some grown-ups in our society, disproportionately women, who are still dependent on another outside powerful person um, for approval. And that's not the way I want my daughter or my son to grow up. So uh, I'm going to offer them support and guidance and unconditional acceptance and i'm going to point things out occasionally and i'm going to ask them questions all of which is a way of working with them rather than giving them a patronizing pat on the head when they've jumped through my hoops
0: yeah and i like how just with just as with the um talk less ask more modeling respect and the way treating your children the may- way you would want them to treat other people either presently or as they mature how that approach to how you give attention is actually modeling curiosity and engagement, which, again, has huge implications for the success of adult relationships as well as that. Yes, with your that's child. right. But the key
1: here is, is not to just get caught up on the script. What exactly am I supposed to say when my kid does X? That's, that's a blind, uh, that's a, a cul-de-sac at that end. We, it, the important stuff is the broader stuff. It's not what one says exactly. It's why we're trying to move away from not only praise and unnecessary judgment, but rewards, conditional acceptance, um, doing to, and ultimately. And, and this, and, and this, I think, will be my, my 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 conclusion here is that it's really about um, what we're looking for in the long run. Which is, which is what we started. It's not just about finding another technique that's a little... Uh, y- y- I mean, is time out better than spanking kids? Sure. And for that matter, spanking them is better than shooting them, but that's not much of an argument <laughs> for spanking. The real question is not how we're going to fine-tune the techniques we're using, but to ask what we're looking for as a goal. If the goal is still to control your child and get compliance... You're not really making much progress just because you're doing it with sugar coated control.
0: Yeah, yeah. And if the goal is to control your partner, then you're gonna be in a lot in a world of think hurt think, in your right. relationship versus right. yeah, a mutual relationship. Well, Alfie Cohn, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Um, Alfie's book, Unconditional Parenting, Moving from Rewards and Punishment to Love and Reason, is available on his website and on Amazon. He, um, his book, The Myth of the Spoiled Child, just came out in paperback, so you should check that out. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, you can find out more about Alfie at Alfie Kohn, and that's spelled K-O-H-N dot And we will also have a link to his site as well as detailed show notes available for you at neilsatin.com slash parenting. So, Alfie, thank you so much for joining us today. really appreciate your insight and your contribution.
1: My pleasure. I appreciate your interest.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive Community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com podcast. Or you can always text the word passion, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.